chapter 7 today. Yes, the theme is marriage here. Continuing on with this uh, theme in the chapter of marriage, today's study is titled, Till Death Do Us Part. And we're going to pray before we dig into the text today. Lord God, this is your word. It is very relevant. It is very near to us today, this subject of marriage uh, and, and even divorce. And Lord, uh, there's, there's things that are going to be spoken today that aren't what our flesh wants to hear, God. Um, Lord, things that go completely against the world's culture around us and the direction that uh, many of our friends and family are going. And so, Lord, let your word be the authority. Let your word be uh, what shapes our life and our homes and our relationships, God. We pray that family values and everything we've ever held as a value would be compared to your word. Uh, Lord, it's in you, it's in Jesus that there's any value in family at all. And so we pray that we would come to that source of family value. Lord, if there's anything that we don't want to hear today that you would, would have us hear, Lord, would you just soften us to be able to receive that? Lord, if there's anything going on in our life that's different than what we're going to hear today, would you give us the grace to repent and to move out of that and to lining up to the scriptures, God? Lord, would you give me the boldness and the courage to speak the truth in love and in power, not on my own authority, but the authority of, of you who love us and have given us the Holy Spirit. And uh, to God be the glory in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We bless you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Till death do us part, keeping your marriage vows. If you're heading west on the highway out of Prineville, uh, you'll see this sign. I don't know if you see it back there, Nikki. There's this sign. It's kind of hard to see from there. But it basically says divorce.com. Log on, move on. All right? I happened to go to this website this morning, and I, I almost felt like I was like falling into sin or like going, going to a porno website or something. Like, should I really type this into my web browser? But I just got to see what it is. And um, I totally, that was wrong to do. No, it, it's just so sad because there's this easygoing marriage, divorce. We're seeing it in our community. Uh, we're a fast food society. Nowadays, we're a fast marriage and a fast divorce society as well. And as you just look through this website, um, surprisingly, it's not as like hostile towards marriage as you would think. Um, but it's, it's even worse because it's deceptively friendly to people that just want a quick divorce. And there's a line on the website that just says, from the comfort of your easy chair or your home computer or perhaps your iPad, you can just simply get the process going to get rid of your mate. And it was just like, ah, oh, from the comfort of your easy chair, get a divorce. It's sad. And that's our, that's our society. That's Prineville, Oregon billboard. Okay, this is where we are at. I remember reading about uh, divorced couples in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and how they can take advantage of a business in town called Freedom Rings. It was jewelry for the divorced. 
It was founded by a jeweler and a divorcee named Lynn Peters, where, where she made custom jewelry out of wedding rings. Each customer at Freedom Rings would pay a fee, and then there would be a ring-smashing ceremony complete with champagne and music. Doesn't that sound romantic or whatever the opposite of romantic is? Just before the smashing, the MC would say, we will now release any remaining ties to your past by transforming your ring, which represents the past, into a token of your new beginning. Now take the hammer, stop for a moment, and consider the transformation that's about ready to happen to you. Ready? With this swing, let freedom ring. Then she'd use a four-pound sledgehammer to whack the emblem of love and fidelity and covenant and commitment into a shapeless piece of metal, and the ceremony is over. And so that men and women are pounding their wedding rings into pendants or grinding them into golf ball pins, markers, it, it, it shouldn't surprise us. Again, that's the culture that we live in. Oregon saw 29,351 marriages, and I'm sorry, most recent figure I could find was in, in 2007. But it also saw 14,844 divorces the same year. That is almost exactly 50%. 50% divorce rate. 72% of the entire U.S. population uh, gets divorced every year. The sad thing is that the born-again adult Christian figure of divorce is so similar, uh, 32% in Christians uh, versus 33% in the world. What that means is that the church looks no different on how it views marriage than the, than the pagans, than the Gentiles who do not know God. The Georgia Family Council reported that in first ever research, a new report quantifies a minimum of $112 billion in annual taxpayer costs come from high rates of divorce and unmarried childbearing. It identifies national, state, and local costs, which amount for more than $1 trillion in the last Decades, even a small improvement in the health of the marriage uh, marriages in America would result in enormous savings to taxpayers. This article goes on to say, for example, a one percent reduction in rates of family fragmentation would save tax taxpayers one point one billion dollars. To the extent that family fragmentation causes negative outcomes through higher spending on anti-poverty programs and throughout the justice and educational systems, as well as losses to government coffers, to foregone tax revenues, potential risks to children raised in fragmented families have been identified to include poverty, mental illness, physical illness, infant mortality, lower education attainment, juvenile delinquency, conduct disordered, adult criminality, and early unwed preg uh, parenthood. Pregnanthood, it's kind of a combination of both. It goes on to say, both economic and human costs make family fragmentation a legitimate public concern. This is the secular world saying our families are blowing up and we are paying for it. 
Historically, Americans have resisted the impulse to surrender to negative and hurtful trends. We fight problems like racism, poverty, and domestic violence because we understand that the stakes are high. And while we'll never eliminate divorce and unwed childbearing entirely, we can certainly be doing more to help marriages and families succeed. So, one trillion dollars spent by taxpayers due to uh, results of divorce in the last decade, not to mention all of the results that come from divorce. And so we have all that going on in our society. We, we're paying for it as a society. Uh, and, and we come to 1 Corinthians uh, where a letter is written to a society not that much different than ours. Not that much different to ours. And so a letter is written by Paul the Apostle to a a church in a very pagan land, a church that really was being lukewarm, compromising, and carnal, being ruled by their flesh. And they hear this from the Apostle Paul in chapter 7, verse 8, where he says, I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it's good for them if they remain even as I am. So uh, there's, there's three different groups of people that are mentioned in this section of the chapter. First of all, we have the unmarried individuals. Those who were never married, whether that's because they were feeling called towards celibacy, perhaps they're divorced, perhaps they're widows. And he just says, it's good to remain even as I am. And he says that a few times in this chapter. And the latter part of the chapter will really tell why it's so good. And Paul was single as he wrote this. Perhaps uh, he was a widower or perhaps his wife left him. It's believed that Paul was a married man. In fact, he was a a Jew, a Pharisee, part of the Sanhedrin. And uh, it was known that those men, they were required to be married. In fact, if they weren't married by the age of 18, they were considered in sin. And so Paul, that's his background. He says that in Philippians chapter 3 and other places telling his testimony that he was a Jew of the Jews. He was, in fact, a Pharisee and a member of the Sanhedrin. And yet in other parts of the epistles, he says, uh, I'm, I'm a single man. And church history believes that when Mrs. Paul heard of his Damascus Road experience and that he was a, a Jesus lover now, when, when he was dragging off Jesus lovers to prison just a few days earlier, uh, that she actually left him. And that he was one that lived out Jesus's words of, man, you know what? In comparison, if, if your wife doesn't want to follow Jesus, it's time to hate your wife and follow Christ. Your love for Jesus should make your love for your wife seem like hatred in comparison. So we see Paul the Apostle counting the cost of being a disciple and, uh, and we'll get to verse 32 to see the full reason why it would be b- beneficial and actually better, Paul says, to stay single so that you can serve the Lord without distraction. But in verse 9 it says, But if you cannot exercise self-control, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. The Corinthians were a people that were lacking self-control. In verse 5 we see that. Um, and, and the question is asked, okay, so in my dating or in my engagement, is there a difference between burning with passion or simply feeling the heat? Burning with passion is, is verse uh, 5 and, and verse 9 tell us, or just feeling the heat of, you know, 
being a man, you know, or, or being a woman. John Calvin suggests that there is a difference. He says, feeling the heat is common to man and is to be dealt with vigorously by the power of the Holy Spirit. Burning with passion is being so aflame with passion that you cannot stand up against it. Another man said, to be so consumed with inward desire that scarcely anything else matters or can be coolly considered. This individual would be just enraptured with the secret flame of lust which lays waste to the whole inner man, an 18th century preacher put it. And as John Piper said uh, from last week's teaching on, on how marriage is, uh, is so beneficial against warring, against sexual immorality, uh, he said marriage is a dam against the flood of fornication and adultery. And so uh, this, this beautiful truth to, man, if you are single and you're burning with passion and that's all you can think about, it's good to be married. All right, it's, it's good to get married. J.B. Phillips says, if they find they have not the gift of self-control in such matters, by all means, let them get married. I think it's far better for them to be married than to be tortured by unsatisfied desire. That's a paraphrase of verse 9. And so there's this, there's this controversy in the Corinthian church because some people were saying, man, you're only super spiritual if you stay single for the rest of your life. That might even mean you got to get divorced so that you can really serve God well. And then there's another group that would say, no, you have to be married. And so Paul brings good biblical insight to these two camps, to these two arguments. And so verse 10 really gets into our text for the day where he says, Now to the married I command, yet not I but the Lord, a wife is not to depart from her husband. Okay, so I just want you to take that verse and underline it and meditate upon it today. A wife is not to depart from her husband. Now, I already know anyone that knows the scriptures, you're already thinking, well, Rory, there's exceptions to that. There's exception clauses to that. Jesus even said so. Let's not go there yet, okay? Uh, We're not going there yet because Paul hasn't gone there yet, okay? Paul says, to the married, I command, yet not I but the Lord. And when he says this, he says, this is something that Jesus himself taught. A wife is not to depart from her husband. The word depart could be also worded divorce, separate, or divide away from her husband. Okay, this brings us to the second group of people that are addressed, the married individual who gets a categorical statement from Paul Basically saying marriage is permanent and how long does it last? Life long. Life long. Categorical statement there. A wife should not depart from her, her husband. What if someone decides they don't need marriage anymore? A wife is not to depart from her husband. And don't worry, gals, in the, in the next verse it says, no, her husband from his wife. Uh, what if they decide they don't like marriage anymore or feel that they made a mistake in getting married or perhaps they married the wrong person? Very sad this week reading uh, in the news of a 22-year-old Missoula, Montana girl who regretted marrying her husband and eight days after the wedding pushed him off of a cliff. 
The mother-in-law says, nobody is shocked at all. She'd been telling people she knew she never wanted to be married. She just wanted to have a wedding. And that's apparently what they were arguing about when she shoved him off the cliff. Okay, so that's an option. (laughs) Or, that's horrible, forgive me. I'm worse than Tammy up here. Okay. (laughs) Or an individual might believe they would be more useful to the Lord if they were only single or, as a dear friend of mine decided, he would be more useful to the Lord if he wasn't married to this woman anymore, but if he was married to this woman. So as everyone begged and pleaded with him not to divorce this woman, he did it anyways and went, and now all of his Facebook posts of how he's so in love with her and getting married to her and all of this, okay? Um, that's what we're living in, okay? Mark chapter 10, verses 9 and 12 Jesus says this. This is not I, Paul, saying, but you can, you can look at the lips of Jesus himself, and he's saying what God has joined together. Let not man separate. In the house of his disciples, they also asked him about the same matter. So he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. You need to hear this, America. Are you hearing this? Because all the worldly wisdom says otherwise. Everything that you're going to get out there says otherwise. Do you love Jesus? Do you want to be under his authority, under his lordship? He is telling you this today. If you divorce your wife and marry another, you commit adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. You don't need to be a genius to understand this. You don't need to go to Bible school or seminary to understand this. Read the scripture that's been given to you. You have a leatherback book in your hands. Open it up and look to it for guidance in your life. Here's what the Old Testament says about it. In Malachi chapter 2, verse 13, he says, this is the second thing that you do wrong. We don't have time to get into the first thing. The second thing you do, the Lord says, you cover the altar of the Lord in tears with weeping and crying, so that he doesn't regard the offering anymore, nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been the witness between you and the wife of your youth with whom you've dealt treacherously. Listen to this. This is your wife, men. Yet she is your companion, She is your wife by covenant, but did he not make them one? Having a remnant of the spirit, and why one? He seeks godly offspring. Therefore, take heed to your spirit and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce. The Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce. Says the Lord of hosts, therefore take heed to your spirit that you deal not treacherously. What is divorce? It is dealing treacherously with the wife of your youth, whom you made a covenant of before the the Lord, and the Holy Spirit did an incredible work when you walked down the aisle and went to the altar when he made two become one. 
That's what happened at the altar. A woman is not to divorce her husband. A husband is not to divorce his wife. Verse 11. But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried. Two options here. You could list them yourself. Two options in the scriptures given to the married who divorces or separates. Number one, let her or him remain unmarried. Or two, let her or him be reconciled to their husband. As Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown said a century ago, if the sin of separation has been committed, that of a new marriage is not to be added. Let's go to the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus himself, Matthew 5.32. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. That gets us into the clause that we are going to see, the exception clause that we will see also in Matthew chapter 19. We'll get there in just a second. But I just want to comfort you gals here because then it goes on to say in verse 11, and a husband, and this goes both ways, all right? He wasn't picking on the wives there for a second. And he's been very good, hasn't he, in this whole chapter? Like, and likewise the wife, and likewise the husband, and the husband is not to divorce his wife either. These passages tell us that the commitment to marriage is first of all for life, secondly, it's underwritten by God, and third, it's not to be tampered with by human beings. The bottom line in what we're reading right now for those who are considering divorce is this. Don't consider it. Don't consider it. Divorce is out of bounds. I'm coaching soccer right now. And I've got my whistle. And the ball, and I sometimes ref it. And the ball, if it rolls completely over the line, you got to blow the whistle. It's the rules. You got to blow the whistle. There has to be a throw in. Divorce. Tweet. Okay. Let's pause for a second. You're out of bounds. Let's get into bounds. Okay. If you find yourself in a difficult place as a married couple, I urge you through the Holy Spirit this morning to commit yourself and your marriage to the Lord with the firm belief, trusting in the Lord, that he is able to renew your marriage. He is able to restore your marriage. He is able to rekindle what has been lost in the affections department, in the sexuality department, in the love department, in the kindness department, in the death to self department. That's what he's saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're not considering any exception clauses yet. It's just how we read 1 Corinthians at its first read as the Corinthians were sitting there and they're all, oh, look what came in the mail today. Here we go, <laughs> you know. And he's reading that out to the church. I'm not sure what that was. I thought I heard it. Okay. Um, so you might be saying, so I'm stuck like this and I'm stuck in this. And the only options as of 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is to either be reconciled to my spouse or to live in celibacy for the rest of my life. 
Those are the options that we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now, you guys know Matthew 19. Let's go ahead and turn there. If everybody could turn there, it's the first book of the New Testament. Matthew 19, 1. Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these sayings, he departed from Galilee, he came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. Great multitudes followed him, he healed them there. Great stuff's going on, hanging out with Jesus, right? Well, then the Pharisees come to him, test him and say to him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? Now the Pharisees that were coming and questioning Jesus, they had a whole lot of outside education, outside knowledge. They had the rabbis that they would learn from and listen to and, and, and uh, sit under. There were three main rabbis who had big views on divorce. There was a rabbi named Rabbi Shammai who had more of a liberal view on divorce. And he believed that the, the level that they could dismiss their wives was for any reason. The prerogative for divorce was exclusively on the husbands. A direct quote from the literature of Shammai is, burnt dinner, too much salt, unclean, disrespectful, doesn't like your parents, divorce her. Okay? So as the Pharisees come and question Jesus, they've got that in their iPod or iPad, you know, in their Kindle edition or whatever. Uh, and, and, and a lot of reasons that people get divorced today are very similar, are they not? Uh, another rabbi, his name was Akabai, who said, if a man saw another woman more beautiful than his wife, he could divorce his wife. All right, so you had that, like, all right, we're going to quiz Jesus here on divorce, right? Uh, not a, not a uh, bad thing if you're living in the world. Sylvester Stallone said right after he made the movie Rocky, boxing is a great sport as long as you can yell cut whenever you want. Okay, and that's essentially what the, uh, the followers of Akabai uh, believed like, oh, all right, divorce is over. There, look, that looks like a better or marriage is over. That gal looks better. Let's go after her. Finally, Hillel, Rabbi Hillel, had a more conservative view that marriage was sacred. The only grounds for divorce was adultery. Okay, the world that we live in has four different big main views on divorce, divorce and remarriage. First of all, divorce and remarriage are permitted in all circumstances. Secondly, divorce and remarriage are forbidden in any circumstances. Thirdly, divorce is allowed in some circumstances, but never remarriage. And fourthly, divorce and remarriage are permitted, but in very limited circumstances. And which one of these is biblically accurate? We're going to look at scriptures dealing with divorce today. And uh, hopefully we'll have a conclusion as we come out of it. But Jesus, when he's asked this, he doesn't take sides with Shammai or Hillel or Akabai. Uh, he comes to the scripture himself and he challenges them on that. Uh, he asks them, Mark's gospel says he asks them a question. That's what rabbis did. They answered a question with a question. And he said, what did Moses permit? What did Moses uh, permit? And he, so Jesus answers in verse 4 here in Matthew 19. And he says, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? So here's, here's his answer to the question on can a man dismiss his wife for any reason? Jesus takes them clear back to the beginning, to Genesis 1.27 and 2.24. Notice that Jesus had no problem turning to the narrative of the Adam and Eve account for his answer of a historically accurate authoritative. That's a great place to go. 
He says, didn't they, he make them male and female singularly? Not male, not men and women, but a man and a woman. He says this to, to challenge their mind. Because in the creation account, in the Garden of Eden, if Adam was going to bail on Eve, he was either going to be single or be reconciled to her. All right? That, those were his options in the garden. Either single or be reconciled. Go hang out and uh, live with the animals for a while. Live with the wolves or something. When you leave someone, it is bizarre. According to the Genesis account, it's a bizarre thing. It's just as bizarre as homosexuality and Adam and Steve and those kinds of things. It's, it's No, when I created you, I created you male and female, one and one. And yet our marriages have become revolving doors. The vows till death do us part for better or for worse in sickness and in health are replaced with until I find someone better, until you tick me off, until you start getting old and succumbing to the effects of gravity. I will not do a wedding or a marriage if those are the vows there. While a wedding is a one day event, a marriage is something that lasts a lifetime. It's the achievement. Okay, Jesus says in verse 5 here, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is again coming from the creation account and showing us that when marriage occurs, the two are made one. One plus one equals one in God's economy. There was never in God's design to be a painful splitting or ripping up of the two. That's why I believe that God will never be the one that initiates a divorce. Jesus declares what God had established in marriage, not just for Christians, but for all created human beings. Divorce is the breaking of a seal that has been engraven by the hand of Almighty God. Verse 6 tells us that they are no longer two people, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. So they said to him, well, why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? Now notice, the Pharisees don't say that it was God's plan, but that it was Moses's who represented the law, that, it, that Moses commanded this, which is wrong. Uh, and notice also their language, to just put her away. The Pharisees thought that women were just an object that could be put away, tossed out like the trash, and then you can move on to the next best thing. And what they left out was, in Moses's permission of a divorce, there must have been some form of sexual immorality. And so verse 8 says, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. God's will was that divorce would never happen, even if sexual immorality occurred. His heart is always for reconciliation, but people's hearts are hard. Do you notice that? Moses permitted it because of the what? Hardness of your heart. There's a permission there. But it's only if sexual immorality has happened. Because man is so hard-hearted, marriage has lost its bind. When there's hostility in marriage, instead of praying, fasting, 
pushing each other off a cliff. (laughs) Moses said, fine, here's a permission. So you don't kill each other. Here's the separation. Many a divorce can be tracked back to a hardness of heart. When couples won't sit and submit to the authority of God's word, they sit as far away as they can. And as they do, their hearts get harder and harder and harder daily. And many a divorce could be avoided if repentance from my sin took place. One man said, divorce seems so much more appealing in prospect than it is in actuality. Moses' law, this permission of a divorce and getting a certificate of it, did three things. First of all, it established an official legal procedure making divorce harder to do. No longer could you just throw your hands up and say, I'm done with it. You had to go to Moses, you had to write out a certificate of divorce, provide the evidence, and then present the certificate to her. Getting the certificate necessitated a cooling off period. You had to go seek out a scribe, pay a large sum. It all acted as a deterrent. You're heated and you're hot and you go, ah, give me the piece of it. Ah, what am I thinking? I made a covenant before the Lord. He made us one by the Holy Spirit. Oh, get get me out of here. I got to go back to my wife. You know, I'm sure that happened. It confronted the person with a reality that once a man divorced his wife and she remarried, he could no longer remarry her. The law says that. You can't get a divorce, then go off and do your thing and then come back and remarry her. You could never take her back to remarry her. Moses' law was meant to postpone, not to condone a divorce. It was to prevent, actually, not permit the divorce. And what we're experiencing today in the fragmentation of our society and in divorce courts and broken families is what God has desired to spare us from all along. Just because he allows divorce doesn't mean that he approves of divorce. So as we have this exception clause in the gospel that, that except for sexual immorality, you may not be divorced. And, and only then it would be because of the hardness of your heart. Why didn't Paul say that in the 1 Corinthians 7 passage? You know, as he's riding along, don't, you know, women don't separate and depart from your husband and, and husbands don't from your wife. And, and we all know the words from Jesus himself that, you know, unless there's fornication, then you may. Do you remember who Paul was writing to in 1 Corinthians? Do you remember that? Everybody. Everybody was in sexual immorality. It was going on in the church. And the society that they were in was so plagued by And the carnality of this church. It's logical to assume that Paul didn't go there because they were not mature enough in the Lord to hear Jesus' heart in saying the clause. They wouldn't hear the hardness of your heart part They'd say, here's my out. 85% of the church would have been divorced. And so Paul, as the shepherd, as a pastor, he writes it out what God's heart was for that Corinthian church. One man said the Corinthians at Corinth were not so firmly rooted in the reality of regeneration and renewal in the Holy Spirit as to give them the stability to deal with a partner who had raked up a murky past after a bitter domestic feud one difficult evening after a bad week at the office. You know, one bad thing, and they just charge off to get their divorce. We need to remember the Lord's heart, that he hates divorce. It covers one's garments with violence. And Jesus says, it wasn't so from the beginning. 
It wasn't so from the beginning. The Phillips translation tells us that verse 8 of this gospel of Matthew passage says, It was because you knew so little of the meaning of love that Moses allowed you to divorce your wife. And then Jesus goes on to say in verse 9, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. Did Jesus really say this? It's what the scriptures tell us, he said. This is the one exception that we may divorce is sexual immorality? Yes. Are we shut up here when it comes to this subject? Yes. Are there no loopholes? No. In Jewish law, if a person was found guilty of adultery, he was killed, making the other person a what? A widow or a widower, thus freeing them for remarriage. That's the culture that Jesus was speaking to. Here, Jesus shows mercy to the non-guilty person and gives them the avenue of remarriage. In any case, even after the divorce, God still considers them married and any other relationship outside of their marriage is considered adultery unless the other person has remarried. If the person who is dismissed is married again, are they committing adultery? According to the text, yes. Does God's grace extend this far? Is there forgiveness? Is there cleansing? Is there mercy? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Divorce is not the unpardonable sin. God hates divorce. He loves divorcees. But right now where you're at, there's mercy. If you're thinking of getting a divorce and you're just going to go and do it and disobey the Lord, guys, those who, obey, those who love the Lord obey his commandments. Planning out a plot to sin against the Lord. And to deal treacherously with your wife or with your husband, I'm just going to go do it and I'm going to ask for forgiveness later. Is that the heart of a Christian? Is that the heart of a believer? Is that the heart of someone that reads these and says, yes, Lord, you are my Lord. I bow, I submit to your authority in my life. And we've seen that in this church. We've seen people where they're like, you know what? Just not happy, just going to get a divorce. Things just aren't peaceful around the home, so we're just going to get a divorce. And, and, uh, and we strongly counsel against it, and we show the scriptures. And then that individual's gone for a while and then decides, you know what, now that I've divorced my spouse and it's been a little bit of time, there's been a statute of limitations against my sin, I can come back and everything's okay. That's not okay. Don't sin against the Lord in this manner. Jesus says, he says these very hard things. It's hard for me to say, all right? You can go out there and you can, you can talk to Christian counselors who will give you tons of other advice. Go ahead. If you want what the scripture teaches, this is what I've got to stand on here. And it's something that's so hard to, to say and yet not hard because it's the truth that even Jesus' disciples heard it and they just sat there scratching their head and this is what they said. They said, if this is the case for a man and his wife then it's better to just never get married. Yup. Yeah. Jesus even goes on to say, this is a hard saying, not easy to receive. You want to be lied to, get out. 
I'm not going to lie to you here. I'm gonna, we're going to do our best to search the scriptures and let the scripture guide us. And we're going to stand on the truth. And if you don't like this one mammon, one mammon, one man and one woman for life, and you want to dictate your own plan, then just don't call yourself a Christian and go do what you want to do. Okay? Or don't ever get married. Okay? If you're thinking of getting married and you just don't like this and not, I mean, I don't know if I want this one person, blah, blah, blah. Don't get married. There's still a heart issue. The Proverbs do say it's better to dwell in the wilderness than with a contentious and angry woman. And you know, <clears throat> I wouldn't know. In verse 12 of our 1 Corinthians passage today, but to the rest, I not the Lord... Say, if any brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. We're not going to get into the, the, to the rest, I say, and not the Lord. This does not at all deny the inspiration of the, whole, of the scriptures here. Uh, it's just, you know, Jesus' lips didn't specifically say this, but Paul is writing in his apostolic authority. Uh, it's still good. It's the word of God, and the Holy Spirit saw fit to give it to us in the canon of scriptures. Um, but what he says here is, is kind of another sect of people, right? Um, before, we're just talking about married people and divorce, and now we're talking about uh, a man or a woman who's married to a non-believer, a non-Christian. And he even says, if she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. An old Puritan proverb says, if you're a child of God and you marry a child of the devil, you're going to have problems with your father-in-law. Okay? And that's what the scriptures actually teach us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, something that we teach all of our youngsters, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? What communion has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. Okay? So the, the Holy Spirit saw fit to teach us that we're not to be yoked together with non-Christians. We're not to marry a non-believer. We believe these individuals probably weren't sa were not saved when they got married. And one individual gets saved. They're having gospel transformation in their life. It's rocking the boat of the house. It's shaking the faith of the other spouse. And the question is brought up, should I just get, get out? Should I leave this person? And many people from the outside are saying, you should get rid of that guy, that slob, or you should get rid of that lady and, uh, you know, start living your life for Jesus now. Maybe get remarried later. Okay? And Paul gives very good, clean instruction. First of all, you should never get married to a non-Christian. The best way to do that is to never date a non-Christian. Just like the sign says on the side of the Alaskan highway, choose your rut carefully. You'll be in it for the next 200 miles. <laughs> the same is true with marriage. If you're single, be very, very careful who you marry. And not even does this person say, I love Jesus or I am born again, right? Does their life show that? Are they a disciple? Are they on the mission of God? Okay, Here's you, here's the direction you're going. Are they right there with you? In fact, wives or women, if you're, if you're thinking of being a wife, is this person ahead of you so that, she, so that he can lead you in this mission? Okay? 
Because since Christian marriage is death do you part, Paul encourages the individual, even if you're married to a non-Christian, stay with them. If they're still willing to live with you, if she's willing to live with you, uh, do not divorce her. Okay, sorry, I just I didn't want to jump ahead. Look at verse 13, though. Very similar, just likewise. A woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. And Peter has a great cross-reference for us today in 1 Peter 3, 7, where uh, the wives, it says, wives, wrote the reference wrong here, and I know it. Here we go. In verses 1 through 3 of 1 Peter, wives, be submissive to your husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives, when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. Isn't that incredible that a woman can actually lead her husband to the Lord, not necessarily by words, but just by her behavior, by her purity, by her submissive heart, submitting to this guy that, that's not submitting to the Lord. She's, she's being a picture of Jesus in all of his humility, and it's very attractive. When you're married to a non-Christian, stick with it. Stick with it. There's a beautiful work that takes place in a home when there's even one believing spouse. It's a work of sanctification. Even over that non-believing spouse, there's a work of sanctification that takes place. There's a, a drawing, in a sense, that takes place. We see here at the end of verse um, 14 that the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. And a lot of the Corinthians believed that the uncleanness of the spouse would, would cancel out the cleanness of the believer. And Paul says, that's not true. If anything, there's a sanctifying work that takes place in the home, even in the children. If a divorce takes place, the children will be unclean. Right now, they're holy. Right now, they're, they're clean. Divorce fragments the home, which fragments society. And children who go through divorces, we read earlier from the Georgian Journal, children who go through divorces are drugged through the muck of violence and hatred and a marred image of who Jesus is in his relationship to the church. In verse 15, we have one other legitimate excuse for divorce. Besides the clause given by Jesus, which was sexual immorality. Verse 15, if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases. But God has called us to peace. This other clause here, this legitimate excuse would be what's called abandonment. The non-believing spouse being the one that departs. Perhaps he or she was offended with this Christian spouse, refused to live with him or her until they renounced Christ. Remember the Malachi passage about how, you know, God hates divorce because it's dealing treacherously with the wife of your youth. It covers garments in violence. It also says he hates divorce because in marriage he seeks godly offspring. And yet divorce mars that. 
divorce puts those children in a dangerous place. Remember Ephesians chapter 5 tells us that marriage, the relationship there, the intimacy there, the, the headship, the submission, the relationship, it's a picture of Jesus Christ and the church. To the societies around us, when they look at your marriage, they should just be seeing the gospel every day just by looking at you two together. It's the same with your children. When your children witness you together, they are witnessing a picture of Jesus Christ in the church. And when you split that up and divide that up, what does that speak to your children regarding the gospel? If that person departs, let him depart. God has called us to peace. Romans 12, 18 says, if it's possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Verse 16, for how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? What is this saying? Is this a positive thing? Like if you were living, if you were with your buddy and his wife isn't saved, you could be like, dude, how do you know you won't save her? Stay with her. Come on, man. Or is it saying, you don't know you're going to save her, so just let her go, okay? Um, theologians really battle on what this really means, okay? So uh, if you read it positively, how do you know you won't save your husband? You better hang in there because it's a great evangelistic opportunity. But they're not here. They're not dwelling. They, like, left. I, never, I don't even know where they are. Or perhaps the opposite, the negative, just let him go. You can't save him or her. Don't let the unbeliever stick around so you can put tracks under his cereal or blare Christian music throughout the house all the time or put verses on his shaving mirror, you know. Uh, maybe, okay? There's just some debate on what, what this means exactly. One man says if you've... Oops, sorry, my glasses, guys. Sorry, I got to bring them next time. <laughs> <clears throat> As we do a study like this, I want to reach out real quick. And as the worship team can come on up now, I want to reach out. It's our society. It's where we're at. No doubt, 50% of this room has been divorced. Okay? I mean, that's just the church statistics. And so what I don't want is for you today to come in here and to just feel hammered and to be condemned if you have fallen short in this area. Too late, right? I mean, it's, you're already condemned. <laughs> Lord, don't let it be so. Because this is something that you can be forgiven of, and some of you have already been forgiveness, and so receive that forgiveness by faith. Who's the accuser of the brethren? Is it Rory? No, it's Satan. So if you're a Christian and you're being condemned right now, you know what? Just fess up to Jesus and say, hey, you're my mediator. You're my attorney, Lord. I have fallen short in this area, or I've had a, a bad heart about divorce, and I'm even now, I'm considering getting divorced, and I'm, I'm cool with it. I mean, Rabbi Shammai is like, he's my guy, all right? She burnt my toast yesterday. I'm tired of burnt toast. I'm going to move on. Confess that before the Lord as sin. Today, we've been shown a New Testament, a Jesus, a Pauline approach to marriage, and we see that the world, man, it's all relative, all right? It's all relative, and it's false. And we can just weigh it out and say, you know what? I'm, I'm over here. Lord God, bring me over here. May all of my counseling be over here to people. And I'm not the only one that does marriage counseling. You all do marriage counseling. You got the friend. You got the sister. You got the brother. You got the buddy. They're hurting. And you know what the world says? You know what? You just need to be happy. 
That's what it's all about. You just need to be happy. Get rid of him, right? I was a high school pastor for eight years. Do you know how many kids I walked with as their parents were divorced? And you know what they would tell me all the time? It's just better this way. It's better that they're divorced because it's just, it was getting pretty rough around the house. You want to know what's better? Is if mom and dad would die to self and look at their own sin and own their sin and repent of their sin and confess their sin to each other and forgive each other, even if the other person doesn't ask for forgiveness, that would be beautiful. That's a picture of the gospel. It's not better. It's not better. We want to repent today as we come to the communion table. It's interesting at the end of this chapter, again, Paul says, you've been bought with a price. Remember that. You are not your own. You don't determine the length of your marriage or who you get to marry next. That's it's not on you. We look at the scriptures and we see the Lord determines it. We see the Lord determines it. For those that have felt that sting of conviction, man, let it be a gentle conviction that would just nudge you back to truth, to submission under the word of God this morning. For those of you that are here and, and you are that group that, man, I've been divorced, I've been remarried, I've been divorced again and remarried again, I've been divorced again and remarried again. You know what? There's mercy to you today. Jesus took that on him at the cross. Just like he took everything else, he took that on him. There is mercy, there is grace, there is forgiveness. Receive that forgiveness by faith today. Walk in joy today that your sins have been forgiven. And now the marriage that you're currently on, you apply these biblical principles to this marriage that you're currently on. And, you know, if you're here today and you're just, your marriage is hurting. Your marriage is hurting. You know, last week, last week's message on sex and marriage. And some of you are just like, man, it's been another week. My wife and I have not been intimate. My, my uh, wife and I have been arguing. We've been fighting. We don't speak. There's hostility no affection we really hate each other you know what you need the Holy Spirit more than ever this morning you need Jesus more than ever this morning come to Jesus come to the creator of marriage who himself lays out these principles and these precepts he knows that it's hard and he hasn't left you as an orphan to make it on your own. He supplies the comforter. His name is the Holy Spirit. He, he supplies the power. His name is the Holy Spirit. And you, you can just receive more of him today into your life. Maybe you're here today and, and your spouse, they have committed sexual immorality. And you have permission to divorce. But God would show you today something better. Forgiveness. It's interesting. Chapter 19 that says that. 
comes right after chapter 18, a beautiful passage on forgiveness. And I just feel the Holy Spirit would urge you today to just forgive and have mercy as you yourself have been forgiven and shown mercy. That doesn't mean sweep it under the rug. That doesn't mean just, you know, be a victim again. Certainly seek out help and seek out counsel, seek out guidance, seek out accountability, all of those things. Not negating that. But for you today, be merciful as you've been shown mercy. Those who've been divorced and you're single now, man, consider the words of Paul today. These two options of be celibate or be reconciled. Lord, we just want to respond to you. We want to take the cup and the bread and just meditate on your great love on you being our groom and how you laid down your life for your bride. And Lord, as we, as husbands, would take the cup and the bread this morning, God, we just say, Lord, we we confess our iniquities and we confess our falling short of laying our life down for our bride. Lord, as the wives would take the cup and the bread, Lord, they would think about how you, even though you had every right to just do what you wanted to do. You willingly submitted yourself to the Father. Lord, that the wives would be able to walk in that function. The ushers are gonna come and they're gonna pass out communion. And I just encourage you to take the cup and take the bread and to just hold it through this song and to meditate upon these things. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Primeville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Primeville, Oregon 97754. Or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.